So good morning, my dear friends. I want to talk about the Rachel layer archetypes and using our uh, usual approach, that is the approach of deep pshat, never ever to forget the contextual literary layers of the, the pshat and seek in it using how sharp a knife we can to dissect the text that my belief in a sacred text means that the deeper you cut, the more it reveals. So you never have to be worried about the sharpness of your knife. You don't have to be worried about that. It will always reveal a deeper and deeper layers. Some people are afraid to use sharp knives. They're afraid that if you cut too deep, you might hurt an organ. But for me, that's never happened. The sharper the knife, the more critical the tools I use, the deeper it reveals itself. So let's dive in. And I'm going to share with you a text on my screen. And this comes from our parsha. That's chapter 29 of Genesis. Now, can you see how I've highlighted in red every time it uses Hashem's name? Do you see that? And as you go down, every time it uses Elohim, I've highlighted in green. If we dissect and literary-wise... This chapter 30, we can see that there are sections. I artificially divided them. The first section is uh, Leah's birth. Vayar Adonai Kisnua Leah, Vayiftach is Rachma, Rachel Akara. Do you see that? The Medrash says, what's the connection of being hated to opening the womb? Shelio Snua Patachet Rachma. Why would I open her womb? Because she's hated. Omra Kaddish Baruch Ein refuah shel zu, meaning there is no healing to being hated by Jacob, elobabanim. But maybe the refuah will be by her having sons. Alkein hareini no sein lobanim. And that way, ba'ala nichsafla. Maybe the husband will be attracted to her because she's given him children. Medrash tells us that's the connection between Snuah and Yiftach et Rachma. I like this idea, the expression of opening the Rachama. Now, Rachama is not just the womb, but also Chesed, mercy, compassion, right? The, the, the fixing of hatred is compassion, right here. And in this first section, it's all about Leah's giving birth. And you can see, Vayar Adonai Kisnoa Leah, Vatar Leah, Vatele Vatikra Ben Shmo Reuven. And now the etiological, etymological statement of the name Reuven, Ki Amra, Ki Ra Adonai, God saw my affliction. Second son, Ki Shama Adonai, God heard my affliction that I was hated. So she calls him Shimon. Each of these children reflect her, the rivalry and her frustration. The third one, Vatar Vateled Ben, Atahapam Yilaveishi, has no mention of God. Doesn't say, 
Do you see that? It's absence of the Yudke Vovke. The fourth one is Hapam Oda et Adonai, and then she calls it Yehuda. So I just want you to make notion of that third one. And now the second pericope is Rachel sees Kilo Yaldaliakov. She has not given him any children. Vatakane Rachel. And so she becomes jealous. And she confronts Jacob and says, Give me children because otherwise I'm like, I'm dead. And Jacob gets angry and says, What? Now we've moved from Adonai to Hatachas Elohim Onochi. Okay. So then we get the substitutes come into Bilha, my maidservant. And when Bilha has children, Vatome Rachel. It's not Bilha that thanks God, it's Rachel. And it's not Rachel thanking Adonai, it's Rachel saying, Danani Elohim. Midat Elohim, which is Din, Danani Elohim, God has judged me, and he's also heard me. Well, she can't call him Shimon because he heard her, because Leah had used that etiological, etymological reason. So, Alkain Koroshmo Dan, reflecting that God has judged her favorably. Then Bilha has another child. Notice it says, Bilha Shivchat Rachel. We know that all along. First time it says, Vatitelo et Bilha Shivchata. Second time it says, Vatar od Vatele Bilha Shivchat Rachel, Ben Sheni. Vatome Rachel. Again, Bilha has no independent identity. It is only because through Rachel that she becomes pregnant. It's as if Rachel owns the existential child. Naftuli Elohim Niftalti Imachosi. God has multiplied, joined me with my sister, meaning I am equaling her. Actually, it's not true. It was now four to two, but never mind, we'll come back to that. Niftalti Imachosai, Gam Yocholti, and I vanquished her. In what way? Numbers? No way. She's too ahead of you. Vatikrashmo Naftali. Again, Naftuli Elohim. So that's. Four Yudke Vavkes, two Elohims. Vatera Leia ki omdomiledes. And now Leia sees that she had stopped. Medrash says that Leia gave birth within seven years to seven children. So I don't know where, according to the Medrash, she stopped. But she now takes also a substitute called Zilpa, And she gives her to Jacob. Vatele Zilpa. Shivchas Leia, like Shivchas Rachel, now she parallels it. Shivchas Leia, Vatome Leia, very strange. Doesn't say anything about God, doesn't say anything about Elohim. Ba God, wow, look at my good fortune. Vatikra Shmo God. The Ketiv is Ba God. <laughs> the Ketiv that we see in the Bible isn't two separate words, Ba God. It's actually vowelized that way, but it's actually base gimel dalet, which could mean failure. Here comes my failure. Interesting how the Cree and Kativ are absolutely opposite each other in terms of meaning. 
Vatelin Zilpa Shivchas Lea Ben Shani Yaakov, Vatoma Lea Ba Oshri. Oh, look at my joy, Ki Ishruni Banos, how many children I have now. Vatikra Shmo Asher. Interesting. So we have three kinds of typologies here. If we look at the scribble, <laughs> the first section are the four children of Leah, which is Yudke Vovke. Then comes Rachel, Danali Elohim, Naftali Elohim, through her substitutes. Leah, Natan Elohim, Lezivadni Elohim, right? Yisoch Zvulan. And then finally, back to Rachel. Let's go back to the text. Interrupting all this between Rachel, Leah and Rachel, Zilpah and Bilha is the whole mandrakes. Vayelech Ruven b'meik tzirchitim vayim dudaim. Who knows what these dudaim are? I don't know. Mandrakes. But we know from intertextual sources from Shia Shirim that Dudaim and Doda and lovemaking are very connected. So some say that this is an aphrodisiac. And this three psukim are put in here to show that Leah and Rachel meet each other. And for the first time, there is rivalry. Hama'at kachtecha et ishi, lakachta gamet dudae b'ni. Is it enough that you, 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 you stole my husband? Remember, there was a substitute, and in the biblical narrative, uh, only in the Midrashic narrative is Rachel assisting her with the simanim. We talked about that last year. Here, from the narrative perspective, there's a resentment. Isn't it enough that you took my husband and now you should take the Duda Ebeni? And, and, and Rachel, Rachel then says, okay, he can have you tonight instead of the Duda Ebener. And that's the reason it's placed right here in the middle of it. So now Leah goes back to him, and immediately, Vayishma Elohim et Leah, and she now goes back to reciting Natan Elohim Schari, unlike God and Osher. Vatai od Leah Vateli ben Shishi, and now the next doublet, Zvadani Elohim Oti Zevetov, he's given me this wonderful addition, Yizbaleni Ishi, and now maybe he will come closer to me, my husband, as a result of, uh, of these six children. So she counts him as the sixth, Vachayalda Bat. So in fact, Leah has given seven children in seven years, according to the Medrash. Seven and seven, and we're going to come back to this. The last being a daughter. Medrash said it was meant to be a son, but because she had compassion on her sister and realized that the tribes of Israel, the northern tribes, which will be the children of Joseph, has to be uh, Joseph's kids, Joseph and Benjamin. So that's why in utero, miraculously, it was switched to Dina as a gift. So seven and seven. And finally, Vayizka Elohim et Rachel, this is the fourth section, Vayishma Elohim, Vayiftach et Rachma, very similar to what we had said, back to my scribble, here, Vayishma Elea, now right at the end comes Vayishma El Rachel. So Rachel becomes the last one in 
these, this whole literary unit. So we have a very interesting structure in terms of this unit that we have Yudke Vovke in the beginning, then Rachel and Leah through Elohim are producing kids, and then right at the end, Rachel is Elohim. But if I can show you, actually, it's not so easy, not so simple. Vatikra et Shemo Yosef Leimor. So first she says, Osaf Elohim et Herpasi. Now she comes back and calls him Yosef. Leimor saying, Yosef Adonai Liben Acher. It's almost like the pericope ends with the birth of Joseph, in which Rachel is using both the Yudke Vovke and the Elohim. Okay, very nice. The problem is there are deep inconsistencies in this text, and I'm not interested in the Bible critical aspects of that, but we have to be aware of, uh, of those inconsistencies. Now, what are those inconsistencies? The question is, is this just another narrow uh, list like here are the sons of Jacob, or is this a narrative? That is, the birth of Jacob's 11 sons and one daughter is halfway between a narrative and a list. The most prominent aspect of the chapter, of course, are these births, the naming and the numbering of the children. Nevertheless, elements of a literary art are evident, such as the competition between the sisters, Rachel's melodramatic statement, give me children, if not, I'll die, and interspersed the episode of the magical mandrakes, right here. Although the Torah can compose a text that participates in one than, one, more than one genre of literary style, this account just doesn't have a smooth feel to it, but rather feels as if uh, there's more than one hand putting it together. The story also strains credulity and suggests that we're dealing with two separate themes. One, that Leah gives birth to seven children, Ruvain, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, Yisachar, Zvulun, and Dina in seven years. Furthermore, Leah is actually described as having stopped bearing children for a while in verse 35. And it's virtually impossible to imagine what kind of pause if we're to imagine a woman who had seven children in seven years. And this problem, together with the tension between the list-like nature and the literary story-like account of the competition between the sisters means that we're, we're, we're dealing with a complex layered text. Now, there are other incongruities that I want to point out. Rachel's statement after Bilhah's birth, Naphtali, verse 7, does not make sense. I have wrestled Niftalti im am achosai gam yocholti. I mentioned this before. By this point, Leah has already had four sons to Rachel's two. So Rachel can hardly claim to have prevailed. 
There are four cases in which two reasons are given for the name of a specific son. Two of them take the simple form of mother, Leah, offering two consecutive etiologies. The first one being Rufain. And if you can see this, I'm just going to give you one example. Right? Vatahar ben Ruvein. Now, the reason for Uruvein, Ki Omra Ki because God saw my affliction. And now he gives another, she gives another, Ki Ato Ishi. Now my husband will love me. So, is the boy named Ruvein because Adonai Ra'ah, Leah's affliction, and had mercy on her? Or is it because the birth of a son, Ru'u, Bain, look, a son will make her husband love her? Let's go to Zvulun in verse 19. And Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son. God has endowed me with a good gift. Zvodani Elohim, Osi Zeved Tov, a beautiful gift. Hapam Yizbeleni Ishi Kielaladi Lo Now my husband will honor me because I've borne him six sons. So she named him Zvulun. Again, is the boy named Zvulun because God gave Levi a good gift, a Zeved, or because now her husband will honor her? Zvul means to honor. Finally, Joseph. The third comes from Vayiskelokimis Rachel, Vayifta Rachabata Balimbatim. Ben, and now it doesn't say Vatikra Shmo Yosef Lemo. She, she even precedes the etiology before calling him his name. Batome, Osaf Elohim et Cherpati. God has taken away my reproach. Then she names him Yosef, saying, Yosef Adonai li Ben Acher. May God, God add to me another son. One is Elohim, one is Yudke Vovke. Well, is Joseph's name to reflect God's taking away Rachel's humiliation for not having a son? Or is it meant as a plea to God to grant her another son? Yosef, another. Yosef. And lastly, Yisachar. You must come into me, ki sachor schartich bedudai b'ni. For I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night and she said, Notan Elohim Sechari Ashenosati Shifchati Leishi. God has given me my hire, my reward, because I gave my handmaiden to my husband. Well, is she named Yisachar because his mother rented access to Jacob? Sachor Sechartich. I rented him with the mandrakes for tonight. Or as a Sechar, a reward for giving her handmaiden. Lastly, we come to obviously the problem with naming Yudke Vovke and Elohim. And you can see listed here the tribes and what is used, except by Joseph, where both Yudke Vovke and Elohim are used. Remember Mordechai Broyeb picking up on the Bible critics and cushering it, make, giving it a hersha, tells us that there are two strands going through Bracious. All the way from Genesis 1, where it's Elohim, and Genesis 2, it's Yudke Vovke Elohim. That these two strands, never mind about Bible criticism and the etiology of the text, I'm only interested, once we have the sacred text, how it's multi-layered. So I, I have no 
issue one way or the other with Bible criticism. And I'm, I'm not interested in the archaeology of the text uh, beyond what the redactor, the final authorial Harsinai text is. But we have to be aware, like Breuer tells us, that, that the literary structure is made up of these very different strands that are running through it that we have to make sense of. So throughout chapter 29 and 30, the use of God's name varies without any obvious reason. Why is Yudke Volke thanked in the naming one son and Elohim acknowledged in the birth of another son? And the rest of the story is also inconsistent in its use of divine names. Yudke Volke sees that Leah was unloved and opens her womb, but Elohim remembers Rachel and hears her pain. Okay. So... Let's expand on this birth account and let's just go a little bit deeper. Let's look at Rachel and Leah as deeper archetypes, psychological character structures like we would if this was a Shakespearean drama. Remember, it's not hard to miss Rachel's story, but it's really hard to miss Leah's story. Rachel is... It's it's difficult because it's so intertwined with layers, the narratives and, and the characters and the intertwining of the two. She was their wife, Jacob, and, uh, uh, and a sister who died too soon. But if you read the Torah carefully, you can tease out Rachel's story as a standalone. She's a powerful woman. She challenges social convention and deeply respected for it. Each time the names Rachel and Leah appear in a single sentence, the Torah lists Rachel's name first. It does this even though Rachel is the younger sister and the second wife, and even when we bless our daughters every Friday night, Yesimech Elohim, Kesara, Rivka, Rachel, the Leah. Rachel comes first. The prophet Yirmiyahu names Rachel alone as the mother of the Jewish people in 31. The Medrash Eicha Rabbah, we've done this many times on Tisha B'Av, has only Rachel being successful in interceding with the Rabboni Shloilam for Shavu Vonim Ligvulam. It is Rachel, not the Imahot, others, not Avram Yitzhak, Yaakov, and Moshe, and Yirmiyahu himself. No one can move God except Rachel. She asked that God rise at least to her spiritual level when she gave the simanim to her sister. And that evoked chesed and rachamim in the divine to promise that us, that the Jewish people will return to the land. So let's look at Rachel as a spiritual psychological archetype. Jacob loves Rachel. So he makes a deal with Rachel's dad to work seven years in exchange to the right to marry her. So it looks as though Rachel is going to take on the adult responsibilities of marriage before her older sister Leah. But at the last minute, there is the substitution. In the Torah's symbol system, Lavon represents the conventional, the mechanical worldview. He does everything he can to put Leah in the position of the first wife, because that was the convention. A position due her by the right of the birth order. But he lacks the spiritual perception to discern the true spirit of his daughter, Rachel. So Rachel comes to subvert the natural order of things 
the way Jacob did. Despite the birth order and the marriage order, Rachel functions as the first wife and the head of the household. The Torah doesn't give us a daily log of married life, but every story includes a detail about Rachel's role. Rachel speaks her mind outright to her husband. She maintains Jacob's marital schedule, decides with whom he spends each night. When there is a formal family meeting, Rachel speaks before Leah, and after Rachel dies, the whole family relationships fall apart. The Medrash rubber puns on the role in the family <laughs> in an amazing way. It says that Rachel was akara, which means that she was barren. But the word akara is from the same word as the root ikar, the heart of the matter, the essential point. Ikar is a masculine noun. Akara looks like the feminine version of the noun. Thus, Torah is telling us that Rachel was the head of the household and the heart of the family. That was her ikar her true essence. The cost of seeking your own true self is costly. A person who upsets the social order upsets people, real people. And the interpersonal wounds run deep. Healing takes long-term inner work. And not until many years after her father's trick does Rachel say, with holy wrestling have I wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed. And right after that, the sisters begin to cooperate. Jacob, too, learns from Rachel about holy wrestling. As you know, after that night encounter with the angel, he, too, has to wrestle with God and human beings and prevail. And only then is he able to reconcile with his brother. Now, psychologists have used this archetype of Rachel and Leah uh, to explain why we choose the people we marry. No one knows for certain how people fall in love. The two paradigms that dominate the discourse among researchers in the psychological realm are presented as possible models. The first model conforms to our experience of love at first sight, but it is actually more complicated than that. It has to do with the nature of the unconscious. Uh, Freud theorized that each of us is born with an empty unconscious that over time gets filled with repressed memories. However, my Rebbe, Carl Jung, the Christian, rejected Rabina Herr Dr. Freud's theory and hypothesized that everyone is born with an unconscious filled with these archetypes or pictures. They tell our conscious brains what certain ideal behaviors look and feel like. There is a collective unconscious that we all inherit. Thus, a woman's mother archetype governs her mothering behavior. And a man's senex, his wise old man archetype, governs the idea of his notion of God. So Jung said that men and women also have archetypes of their ideal soulmates. They are embedded deep within the psyche. And he called that anima and animus. These archetypes are not rigid. They can be modified by the experiences and impressions, by the trauma and the abuse we get as children or that we have of our parents and cultural ideals. For example, 
Marilyn Monroe, Cary Grant, whatever's in the culture uh, that we carry within us or interpersonally. So we see a person in front of us who looks just like our soulmate archetype, and we imagine that this real person is our soulmate. This process is called projection. He got that from Freud. We project onto the person in front of us the characteristics of our anima or our animus. We assume that in addition to being physically attractive, the person we have just met also possesses all the characteristics of our archetypes, kindness, compassion, selflessness, self-confidence, protecting, erotic, and so on. We fall in love with that person quicker than we ever thought possible. When Yaakov meets Rachel, it's immediate. It's immediate recognition. It's an immediate projection. Of course, the problem is that we don't really know a thing about that person. What we believe to be true is what we have unconsciously projected on him or her. And what gets projected is the soulmate archetype, a part of each of person's own psyche. So we actually fall in love with parts of ourselves, not with the other person. That's the theory. Soon enough, this becomes a problem. And I have told you <laughs> a couple of times, Boyker in the tent the next morning, Vahine Leia. That in every manage, marriage, there's a point at which you wake up and you look at the person next to you lying on that pillow. Boyker, Vihine Leia. It's not the person I fell in love with. That's not my soul archetype. Why is there a disappointment? It is because the person will not conform to our animus or anima projection. The person sitting next to us on the pillow is real, complex, multidimensional, self-contradictory human being, like every person, with a history of relationships and values and attitudes and experiences and abuses and inherited character defects, blah, 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 blah. Thus, if the relationship is to succeed, two things have to happen. We have to unlearn everything you assume to be true about this person, and we need to learn who this person really is. That's a long process called individuation, according to Jung. And it can be tumultuous. Many turbulent relationships are chaotic precisely because one or the other or both partners struggle to force the other to conform to his or her archetype rather than accept the person as he is. In our Torah portion, Jacob thought he married Leah. When he woke up, Boike Vihine Leah. He thought he'd married Rachel. And Amedrash explains how the deception could have occurred. Rachel hid under the bed, she gave her the simoni, etc. So Rachel and Leah represent two aspects of the partners we marry. They are both two partners in the same marriage. They are two aspects of the wife Jacob married. The way Jacob becomes Israel once he's individuated after his struggles, so Rachel and Leah represent his projections. The moment he saw Rachel, he falls in love with her, kisses her passionately. Leah represents that second paradigm about marriage. Leah was the wife whom Jacob would come to love over the long haul. 
by bearing the majority of his children and persevering over a long life of family building, Leah embodied the family values that enable Jacob and Judaism to survive. Let's finish with the deepest layer of this text that will bring together all the different aspects that we've been weaving together from the literary, from the psychological, the analytical, from the theological, the Yudke Vovke and the Elohims. What is the deeper aspect of all of this? The Leshem, Reb Shlomo Eliashiv, who Rav Kook got a visa to come, I think in 1928, to Eretz Israel, and spent the last two years uh, studying Kabbalah uh, with Rav Kook, not the Kabbalah of Chassidut, Rav Kook's mother was in fact a Staroshela Chassid of Lubavitch, uh, where he got that spirituality from, he learned in Valozhin, but he learned from the Leshem the Kabbalah of the Vilna Gaon. And the Leshem says that Rachel and Leah represent one soul, straight out of the Arizal. Had it not been for the sin of the tree of knowledge, these two aspects would have remained merged. Or to use the mystical imagery, there would be no separation between the upper and lower worlds, or the hidden and the revealed words. So, Rachel represents the revealed world, the external beauty, that which Jacob falls in love with. And Leah has no eyes of her own. She's crying for Esau, so she can't see. That represents, represents the hidden world. And Rav Kook picks up on this when he says that Jacob's marriage to the two sisters, Rav Kook takes the psychological and projects it onto uh, Jewish destiny. The ongoing rivalry between them is a metaphor for the duality in our own lives. And therefore, the Yudke Vovke representing the hidden nature of the divine, interspersed with Elohim, or the gematria of Elohim being Hateva, the natural cosmos. So the two are intertwined and they're playing between the suns because those represent the duality uh, of our lives. And of course, the rivalry between the hidden and the revealed. Like all things in our world, Jacob's home suffered from a lack of clarity, Jacob should have been able to establish his family on the basis of an uplifted present, blessed with integrity and goodness. He should be able to marry and set up his home without making calculations with any eye to the hidden future. Rachel, whom Jacob immediately loved for the beautiful qualities of a soul, is a metaphor for the simple and natural love we feel for the revealed present. But God's counsel decreed that the future destiny of the people of Israel belonged not to Rachel but to Leah. And Leah would be the principal architect, principal architect uh, of the Jewish people. This future was so profoundly hidden that its current state in Leah was hidden from Jacob. This concealed quality of Leah that's repeated throughout the Zohar is embedded in the very foundations of the Jewish people, according to Rav Kook. Because of the legacy of Leah, we can raise our sights far skipping over present circumstances to aspire to a lofty future. And therefore, the rivalry between Rachel and Leah, the conflict between the beautiful present and the visionary future, is found in the expression of the monarchy of Israel. 
the temporary reign of Shaul HaMelech, a descendant of Rachel, struggles with the eternal dynasty of David HaMelech, a descendant of Leah. I want to finish up with Lekutei Halochus of Reb Nossam Breslover. In Reb Nossam Breslover's meditation on the Kavonos of Pesach, he adds, if you can see in the bottom here, Reb Nossam Breslover, the scribe of Reb Nachman, is bringing us back to the Kavonos of the Arizal on the night of Pesach, where Nichnas Heoras Leia Barochel, that this once a year exposure to Atika, the various highest level of spirituality through no uh, instigation of our own on Pesach night, is the introduction of Leia's futuristic hidden soul of the higher worlds into Rachel, which is the revealed. And that's the secret mystery of the burning of the Chomets. The burning of the Chomets. Because all the Kavonos of Leil Pesach is Barachel below Beleav. On the Kavonos of Pesach, we are exposed only to the revealed Rachel below Belair, because Rachel is the Bechina of Mashiach ben Yosef, Sheyotza Mimeno, the Leah Bechinas Mashiach ben David, Sheyotza Mi Yehuda, Shenolad Mileah. What I wanted to end up by saying is that we have gone this full circle from the literary to the imaginary, to the psychological, to the mystical. We've gone from the literary structure and we have found within the pericope of the racial layer interactions these incongruities that opened us up to the midrashic imagination showing us that both Rachel and Leah, Yurke Vavke and Elohim, represent certain deep archetypes which we have psychologically looked from the perspective of Jung onto the mystical from the perspective of the Leshem and the Zoya to Rav Kook's visionary historical notion of the Malchus Yehuda, Malchus Yosef, the visionary Mashiach ben Yosef and the Mashiach ben Yehuda. But we've gone back full circle to the deep shot that we saw uh, in our reading of the text carefully and finding those flaws in the text, not to expose some kind of biblical, critical, archaeological, but to reveal, according to the depth of the sharpness of our knife, the deep secrets within the text. Have a wonderful week, everyone.